Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 120 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. This season of the EV Musings is sponsored by ZapMap. On the show today, we'll be doing another roundtable episode. But before we start, big drum roll, I wanted to take this opportunity to let you know that the order for my new electric vehicle has gone in, and I'm getting a Volkswagen ID3 Family Pro Performance with a 58kWh battery. It's got all the bells and whistles, it's in white, and other than the colour, it's pretty much identical to the one Rob Shaw and I took on our 1000km journey around the charging wastelands of England back in September. Despite being told they had them in stock when I ordered them, I'm now looking at a May delivery. So now you know. As it's the end of the season, we're doing another roundtable. Today we're holding roundtable number five, and links to the previous few roundtables are in the show notes. And if you've listened to those episodes, you'll know that we have a number of specially invited guests who come on, lead the discussion on various topics of interest in the EV or renewable space. So let me start by introducing the members of this season's EV Musings Roundtable. First, we have Sarah Sloman. Sarah has 15 years experience in transport and infrastructure. She's a believer in supporting all modes of transport for a sustainable future, and her passion is clean energy and zero emission mobility. Hello, Sarah. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. Next, we have Pam Barbato. Pam is the founder of Action Net Zero CIC, passionate about, I'll say that again, passionate about supporting people to take easy, affordable action towards our net zero future and have some fun along the way. She's a connector of people and organisations to accelerate behavioural change and help tackle the climate crisis. Welcome, Pam. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. The format is quite simple. Each guest has a topic they'd like to present to the group. They frame the topic, open it up to the group to discuss, and once we put the world to rights, we move on to the next topic. In previous roundtables, we've discussed home charging, Tesla opening their supercharger network to the rest of the world, throttling rapid charges at peak times, second-hand EVs, and similar topics. And links to all those are in the show notes. And on the agenda this week are the following items. Public charging versus the importance of free charging. Lead time issues in procuring electric vehicles. And charger hogging. Should we be stopping charges at 80% of charge? So first, I'd like to hand over to Sarah to introduce her topic. Thank you so much. Well, I'm very proud to be the head of Future Mobility Partnerships at Elmtronics, who's actually just been acquired by Merck. So they are a European electric vehicle charging company. They're owned by Stackraft, which is one of Europe's largest renewable energy producers. And the reason I love that is that they are 100% renewable energy. So they only use wind, hydro and solar. And I just find this really exciting because we can now underpin our chargers with the backing of renewable energy. And that's the panacea. I want to see people thinking about turning their hand to electrifying their fleets. But whilst they do that, I want them to think carefully about where that energy is coming from. And that could be anyone brilliant like Octopus or other renewable energy companies are available. But choosing the right kit for the right place, making sure the whole thing is underpinned by flexible software, but that you're making sure those vehicles are powered by truly renewable energy. That's what I'm aiming for. What is the question that you'd like to pose to us to discuss? Let's pick that one apart. Do we feel like the public are really understanding the importance of not only going EV, but making sure that they switch to a renewable energy provider? That's a good one. Pam, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, so I think it, it's back to the classic, isn't it? We know that the well-educated uh, in terms of informed about EVs um, will understand that. But we actually recently did a survey at Action at Zero. It was quite a small one, but it was about 100 individuals who, who have had EVs for quite a long time. I was quite shocked. There was 47% from that survey actually weren't smart using and they weren't using renewable energy. Um, so I think it's really fair to say that there are people who are the motivations for buying EVs are not necessarily around the climate crisis or renewable energy provision and therefore that correlation that understanding of the importance of using renewable energy to be able to deliver um, I don't think is there. Do we think that electric vehicles become a little bit of a gateway drug because you know you get into the whole concept of I need electricity to power this Therefore, where will I get that electricity from? Oh, well, actually, there are companies that do renewables. And I mean, personally, today, I've just had solar panels installed on my house. So I think a lot of people are going down that path and starting to think a lot more holistically about energy as a whole, rather than just saying, well, it's something that comes out of a plug in the wall. (laughs) <laughs> I think people are actually getting really, really ahead of themselves. They're thinking carefully about, I'd love to electrify. So next up, I'm going to do this thing that I've learned about called vehicle to grid. And I only want a vehicle that can definitely do that. And then before they knew it, they've accidentally narrowed their market opportunity and, well, chosen quite an expensive charger that they're going to require on their home. I'm all for it. I'm all for people doing research and having sort of aspirations around where they're going to go with their energy. But I think as we move through this energy transition and the renewable energy market does a better job of communicating the importance of using renewable energy. I mean, just this last weekend with the storm, which was devastating to so many, we also broke the most wind generation since, was it 2020? And that wasn't very widely publicised because people often look at the news, they take what they want from it, and they assume that they fully understand the science behind it. And that's no failing. That is absolutely not their failing. That's the media not necessarily digesting and disseminating the real facts properly. And I see that a lot with the electric vehicle industry. At first, people were like, there's not enough cars out there. There's not enough choice. The choice that is there's too expensive. What's the point if you're going to be using coal-fired power stations to, to refuel essentially that vehicle? Whereas now the consumer is incredibly savvy. I was really excited to be at the Grand Designs live show this year at the NEC. And I went on stage thinking I was going to get the same old, same old questions around EV charging. And I did not. I was asked which are the best ground source heat pumps to invest in or air heat pumps or how can I, like you have, congratulations, by the way, put solar on the roof and where do I get battery storage from? And do I know, I at one point just went, wow, I am here to talk about EV charging infrastructure. And yet nobody wants to talk about that. They want to talk about that plus where their power is coming from, plus whether they can store it, plus how long that payback is going to be on their home. And then bottom line is, what financial benefit are they going to feel from essentially doing the right thing for the environment? Looping back to something you said there, do we believe that the general level of education of the general public, and I'm not talking people like you and I who are a little bit more invested in this, do people still think that a huge chunk of the UK's energy comes from burning coal? Or have we got over that barrier? Do people now appreciate that 
it's a lot smaller than it used to be. So it's down to a couple of percent. And therefore, does that then lead on to the fact that they don't necessarily think that renewable forms as big a part of the energy mix as it uh, actually does? It's a really interesting one. Um, so in the southwest region, there's a stat that I found quite alarming um, recently, which uh, states, and it actually came from Dan Norris, a Metro Mayor of the West of England, um, that currently the southwest uses 90% fossil fuels for its energy generation. So if we're looking at that as a, as a fact, um, you know, to your point, Gary, in terms of people's understanding, I do think that for, for me, the big things are, yes, of course, renewables, um, uh, the increase in renewables, the provision of renewables is very much centre stage of people's minds now. They're hugely aware of the opportunities. And of course, that's because we've seen um, you know, a lot of support not least from government level now as well. But on the ground, I suppose one of the things I'm under, is really critical, I think, is understanding that behavioural piece around a renewable energy contract and that energy mix that's being provided from that supplier. And as we obviously have talked about, and then the opportunities um, in terms of uh, generating our own energy. But I would love to hear, yeah, particularly from Sarah, thoughts around um, how that behavioural piece is actually getting to people on the ground on a community level. Because I think for me, there's still a lot of work to be done about the fact that just because you've got a renewable energy tariff doesn't necessarily mean that you are using renewable energy. And that's part of a wider educational piece about carbon intensity around the country and decarbonising the grid and all those great things that we in the know are, are much obviously more aware of than others. <laughs> So true. We always need to go back to that whole reduce, reuse model, because I know you can't reuse energy. I'm not suggesting that. But I think that ethos around behaviour change, where when recycling was more widely accepted and things like plastics were suddenly allowed to be put in with the recycling, people went completely nuts thinking that it was totally fine to buy whatever they wanted because it gets recycled, because it gets recycled, rather than sticking to those sorts of principles around really essentially using your electric vehicle less if you can because it is still energy going into that vehicle that could be you know powering homes or lighting streets but I wonder I've got the thing I like to call a uh, pub chat which means if you're down the pub and I, I wish we were face to face right now but COVID doesn't allow and you listen you just listen to the conversations taking place in the room and if you hear somebody talking about electric vehicles the misinformation that happens is is quite alarming. And I think we need to be careful of the word education because people feel educated. They've read something or they've talked to someone very clever who said something. But what we really should be doing is this kind of awareness raising, almost triangulation of information so that it's not just one source all the time. It's not just Facebook making someone feel educated on the subject matter. I think that's what people like Graham Cooper, Lorna McAteer from National Grid do so well because it's their profession, they're doing it every day and they are excellent at disseminating an otherwise complicated conversation and putting it on social media where it makes sense to someone. And Action Net Zero, Pam, credit to you for everything that you've achieved this last year, making sure that people of the Bristol region understand the importance of moving away from internal combustion engines and into EVs. But you're right, I really feel the missing piece of the puzzle is definitely the energy companies being held to account for their confusing use of language. Is it renewable? Is it clean? Is it green? What does that really mean? What happens if we can't get you the renewable? Are you flexibly energy trading? What's happening to the energy coming into my house and where's it coming from? It's really hard to explain that to people who don't know where to start. And I think it's a bit cheeky 
when some suppliers say we are a clean energy tariff because there's a nuclear in that mix. There is permission for energy trading within that mix. And it just doesn't put the sort of power, pun intended, in the consumer's hands to really, truly trust what's happening when they switch to an energy provider. I think that's really important as we move through the next sort of eight to 10 years that we start to hold people to account. I think that's why I'm so proud of Mer, who is now our owner, we've been acquired by them because they're just hydro, wind, and solar. That's it. Yeah, I think um, Graham Cooper sums it up so beautifully, doesn't he? I mean, I think recently I was having a conversation with him, uh, and uh, he he came up with a nugget that just sticks in my mind, which is if we can just get people to appreciate. Uh, the consumption around energy and thinking kilowatts rather than obviously switching things on or you know charging or not charging and get them to understand the value in those kilowatts which to me it goes back to the basics of sustainability it's you know the elephant in the room is consumption isn't it so if we can start to address that use of consumption is you know do you really need to be having that on and to really start thinking about energy as a precious source one that we really need to value um, uh, then I think that's starts to, to address some of those behavioural issues and hopefully puts the power in individuals' and businesses' minds for them to actually ask those really important pertinent questions about where that energy is coming from so that we can uh, yeah, break through some of some of the use of words, as you say, Sarah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. It, it is about taking a step backwards, though. Like, my parents haven't got a clue where their energy comes from, and I've really tried to help them figure that one out. But what they do do that I do not is they go around turning the thermostat down. They don't have lights on. You know, they burn one tiny stick at a time that they got from across the field. They really conserve their energy because that's how they were brought up. Whereas I was very lucky, had a very nice upbringing, wonderful sort of 80s estate, nicely insulated house, all that stuff. And I have grown up being a little, a little immature with my energy consumption. I want to dial that back. I want to make my family aware of saving those kilo hours making sure that we're not even using them and that applies for evs as well you know i'm a big public transport advocate you know that i want to make space in our congested towns and cities for essential electric fleets to actually get through and not struggle with profitability when the streets are so clogged up they can't do their deliveries i want that i see this wonderful smart city that moves freely and people are given choice around their mobility options and e-mobility plays a huge huge part in that particularly for clean air. And whilst an electric vehicle is great for clean air, I do worry that people who used to take the bus are going to go electric because they're being peddled a message around it being the best option environmentally. An electric bus would be a better option environmentally. Um, so I want to see people conserving that energy more than just sort of subbing it out for a renewable energy alternative a bit like the recycling example we saw people increase their plastic consumption because they thought never mind it will be recycled if people suddenly think it's fine it's renewable i can use as much as i like then we're going to be in a in a sticky spot let me loop back to part of the top the conversation that you just had there which is on the whole topic of clarity from the energy suppliers because i think the the word that we're kind of circling around here but not saying out loud is greenwashing um and that extends out to things like electric vehicle charging because in theory all the electric vehicle charges in the uk at least run on renewable energy but then you look at someone like shell who have the shell recharge network and they they use what do they call recs renewable energy certificates uh regos yes mm. yeah and you know my understanding of that is 
Well, it's not necessarily that they're using renewable energy, but they're buying the carbon credits from somebody who is using renewable energy. So is that a form of greenwashing? Is that something that your average member of the public would A, understand and B, appreciate? Even the phrase needs a definition. So greenwashing itself is about marketing strategies. So this is where a company will put forward a kind of ecological argument or product that sort of makes them look good. So it's hiding, basically. So it's like, these are the 90% of things that we do that are really, really terrible. But look at this 10% of things that we do really, really well. And greenwashing in that way can be quite persuasive. Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree. Ironically, I've just written a piece that's been published uh, by um, a a business um, publication uh, down in the southwest on greenwashing for this very reason, because I think it's it's hugely important that we have these debates about greenwashing, because we know that there's an awful lot of organisations, of course, focus on one element that's positive, but it's critical that transparency um, is clear when we're talking about sustainability, and therefore they have to paint the entire picture. So as you know, as a classic, if we use it, people that say 100% organic, or we don't we don't use single use plastic. But then behind the scenes, they may use lots of other plastic in in other forms of their processes, or they may have one element of their garment that is 100% organic. And it's really not helping the cause because it just adds confusion, as we know. So taking that, obviously, that that piece around energy and the critical importance to understanding, you know, deep green, green, what does it mean? And surfacing these things, because as we've said, organisations at the moment are able to buy certificates and, you know, for me personally, it is absolutely one of the biggest forms of greenwashing um, and it will stop people from actually making green switches because it will relate it will relate to mistrust in my opinion it's completely i have a big problem with offsetting yeah so do i sarah as you well know <laughs> it really bothers me i would really again this reduce thing i would really rather people just did less of whatever it is that they feel they need to offset it was i took a flight and it said uh, we are taking responsibility for this flight and we have offset your flight for you. And I thought, well, hang on, where and how? And if you think really carefully or really start to scrape away about things, particularly things like tree planting, I've seen some really terrible examples of how a tree planting scheme has been done in an area that isn't ready for that type of tree. That soil will suffer from having that type of tree. And they've removed other plants to put those trees in. And that can include removing the opportunity for people that live there to utilise that land. And then that tree will grow. That's great. But then in 10 years time, it's going to be cut down again and turned into something else like a fence or a pallet. Also good. But then we know that fences and pallets also only have a life of maybe 10 years themselves. And then, and then that becomes firewood and all that carbon gets released again. I've massively oversimplified that. But it just bothers me that people are thinking, yay, I'm doing a tree planting scheme. Pat on the back, have more things that require me to do offsetting no no please yeah. stop. please 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 stop think really carefully about where that offsetting is going as far as my research can find it has to be a deciduous forest it has to be protected by legislation that means it's going to stand for a minimum of 100 years it has to be local so the soil isn't affected and ideally it actually wouldn't be that at all it'd be something like sea algae 
or pollution control. Or peatland, totally with you, Sarah. There are so many things that sequest carbon in a much more efficient way that if we focused on those, but uh, yeah, it goes back to the role of, of greenwash, I think, in terms of um, marketing and how people consume, you know, a feel-good factor almost. And uh, and yeah, so I completely concur with your point about the tree planting piece. Um, you know, as you said, it takes years for trees to sequest and therefore a lot of these are just not doing what they're meant to do and, and and ultimately businesses you know are paying to offset and not knowing not through their own fault but not knowing about these intricate and complicated details of biodiversity so really important that all of that is discussed publicly and debated as we're doing today totally agree uh sarah do you think we've discussed your topic enough is there anything else you'd like to add or shall we move well, don't on don't say that i'm trying to make a career out of this so definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm kidding. It has actually been a great debate. Whenever you've got Pam in the room, it's so inspiring. I'm so happy to be here together. Oh, likewise, uh, for mutual fan clubs. (laughs) (laughs) I've obviously picked two great guests for this episode, haven't I? (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's let's hand over to you, Pam. What would you like to talk to us about or, or lead the discussion on? Thank you, Gary. I think it's picking up on some of the points that we've just been discussing. Um, so for me, this comes back to so Action Net Zero. We're all about being able to accelerate uh, behavioural change and um, enable both residents and businesses on a community level to switch uh, to greener um, uh, actions. And one of the key focuses, as Sarah said, is around focusing on transition to cleaner, greener air. And in that process, we've been privileged enough to, to chat to lots of people who have transitioned to electric vehicles or in the process of transitioning to electric vehicles and like Sarah you know we follow absolutely the transport hierarchy EVs are part of that mix but it's really exciting to speak to those people when they're you they are nervous for all of the reasons that we know range anxiety and those myths that we you know we can break down but they've decided to make that switch yet what we're now hearing after sort of six eight months is a backlash to to a bigger macro situation and that macro situation is one that is led by lack of semiconductors in the world so we know that demand obviously for evs um, is at an all-time record which is fantastic but there is a backdrop with pure electrics and that's around well actually both but if we focus on pure electrics the lead times so because of the semiconductor shortage people aren't getting their time their cars delivered um, when they originally were being told they were and anecdotally in some instances we're actually hearing that they're getting put back at least twice and so there potentially is up to you know eight months 12 months lead time and that I think engenders uh, a real potential of mistrust in a transitioning industry so I just thought it'd be a really nice discussion to actually say yes we appreciate that chip shortages are going to resume but um, we work with Edwards who are a global manufacturer um, and they're very close to the chip supply Um, they're suggesting that it's not going to really be resolved until Q3 this year which actually means uh, by the time that goes into OEMs etc it's likely to be a little bit later so just the, the the idea and conversation is more about you know how concerned should we be about managing potential backlashes? And, you know, even to the extent, would it would it be that some of those people that are, are waiting for their EVs may actually revert? They might go to hybrids or they might even revert back to, to ice um, through frustration more than anything. And, and, and how potentially does that impact on the industry? So the first question exactly that was, um, how concerned should we be? 
Can I jump in quickly before uh, Sarah says something? I've got two pieces of sort of semi-relevant information for this. First off, um, I'm currently on a waiting list for a new electric vehicle. And I put the order down October, uh, end of October, November last year. And I was told, yeah, we'll have that for you by, by January. And then two weeks later, that went out to May. And that's still a provisional date. So it's absolutely what you've said there, you know, we, we, the order has been delayed and I have no doubt there will be a further delay as we go, um, as we get closer to the alleged delivery date of uh, of May. But I think what we also need to say, uh, my next door neighbour, who I'm frantically trying to get onto uh, an electric vehicle, has just put an order down for her new car. Um, well, I say she's just put it down. She put it down partway through last year and she's told she won't get delivery of it until 2023. And that is a full internal combustion engine vehicle. So it's not something that's unique to electric vehicles. It is something that's um, sort of widespread. But what it does also do is it has a knock-on effect on second-hand values, which is always good for people who are trying to sell their vehicles. Um, there is uh, a colleague of mine and uh, listened to the podcast, Gary Wales, who uh, has a Tesla Model 3. He's had it for the best part of three years, and he could probably sell it for not far off the amount that he bought it for, because there is just that demand. So, you know, a couple of things to sort of play into there. Um, and I'll now hand over to Sarah. <laughs> oh, it's just customer service at the end of it all. Expectations versus reality. If that was a sofa and you wanted it by Christmas and then you didn't get it till Easter, you'd be raging, but you still wanted the sofa, so you wait. Now, if along the way there's regular updates and communication around the, the realities of supply chain shortages, fine, but it can be quite frustrating when, particularly in a sort of tight-knit community, you know that somebody else has got theirs when they were told they were going to get it and you ordered yours pretty much the same time and you're not going to get yours for months to come. And that can be really stressful for a consumer, particularly around something which has got a lot of change associated with it. Electric vehicles require you to rethink everything. You have to think about the different way of driving the technology, how you're going to maintain it. And whilst these have huge advantages to internal combustion engines, ICE cars, um, electric does favour, but you also have to be aware that the public charging infrastructure is still growing. Before we did the call, press record button, we were talking about the leaders in the UK, some really important names in there. We, we know that GridServe have got amazing plans for their forecourts. Um, Osprey, Instavolt, now Mer as well, our company. We're all doing our best to get equipment in the ground as quickly as we can. However, there's still a shortage in that supply chain too. And even if we had all of the equipment, the UK is facing a massive, massive skills shortage. There just are simply not enough skilled, qualified people to help install these things uh, in a fast enough way to meet that demand of the vehicle. So a tiny part of me is a little bit glad that we've got these delays because otherwise I think we'd be swamped. Otherwise, people thinking that they can just hop on the motorway and go to a charger is going to have a problem. There's already queues and we've done a really good job of making sure that we're being positive about it. And we should be because every single month, more and more pop up. I really haven't ever seen anything quite like the hands on deck effort, people putting in 12 hour days to get things fixed or sorted. Mm -hmm. You know, we're really pulling out all the stops in the UK, trying to get ourselves 
to where we need to be. But at the end of it all, if someone's put a lot of money into something and they haven't got it, they're going to be despondent. And customer service rule 101 is they're going to tell a lot of people. And we could really do without that. We've really tried hard to celebrate the opportunities that electric vehicles can bring. And at the same time, if the internal combustion engines are also having delays, that isn't really being communicated. That's the first thing I've heard about it. So thank you for sharing. But just think if the manufacturers and dealerships and leasing companies could just be a little more specific it might really help that in consumer and i appreciate they probably don't have the information themselves i appreciate they're just passing information on but we need to get better at communicating it and sharing it and maybe even supporting people along that journey maybe we should be working towards here's here's a subsidized bus pass in the meantime <laughs> can you imagine I think I think that's the point for me is actually is there an opportunity here uh, to actually see what the industry could be doing collectively because again if we look at where those bottlenecks are whether it's dealerships as you say or I said whether it's around the charging infrastructure this is this is potentially uh, yeah a, a whole industries that reliant on managing expectations as the transition happens um, and taking people along that journey and we as you say Sarah it's going to happen so quickly now we know that but inevitably there will be uh, lots of sticking points I think and and it's it, it, yes yeah, for me I think it's, it, it is it is an industry-wide um, challenge and perhaps it could be addressed from an industry-wide perspective. Can I play devil's advocate on this one? Because <laughs> I kind of like playing devil's advocate for some reason. Yeah. Maybe that says something about my personality. I'm not sure. Tesla don't have this problem. Yeah, you can order. You can go online now and order a Tesla, and it will be here within weeks rather than months. And okay, they've obviously done something different to the legacy manufacturers who are having the problems. But another sort of tidbit of information to throw in there, and you're probably aware of this. Um, Jordan Brompton at My Energy, uh, when she was on the podcast, she said they've been hit by uh, the same sort of problems that the uh, manufacturers are having with the chips. What she decided to do is within their company, they took an executive decision. They redesigned the product to work on a different chip that didn't have the issues of supply that the other ones were having. So if a non-legacy manufacturer can do it, if somebody who's working in the same, albeit tangential industry, has found a problem, found a, a solution for that problem, why can't the legacy manufacturers do that? I, I wholeheartedly agree in terms of um, the, the fact that if you're able to be agile and you're able to address these things, uh, then absolutely they can be avoided. Um, Ewan McTurk, actually in a meeting that was having the other day, again, made a great one. We were talking about the chip shortage and uh, he said, you know, wouldn't it be fantastic if actually some of the EVs that were being produced at the moment were down specced a little bit, perhaps to be able to accommodate some of the shortfalls that we know are within the chip area and thereby perhaps reduce cost as well as reduce the necessity for these particular um obviously the number required as we know with a lot of chips required for an ev i think it's right isn't it it it's about approaching this challenge um in a very different way which is is being agile to to the problem and being able to try and work around it i think yeah you know, jordan's point is a fantastic one that she's she has had the full or they as an executive team have had the foresight to do so well ahead and have have will be able to ride this out yeah absolute legends hats off to them at my energy and also let's think about british vault have you heard about this so they've been given the planning commission the go ahead the spade in the ground everything's playing in their favor where they're going to be making um 
batteries essentially for electric vehicles but obviously other component parts too in their huge factory in the northeast and the bit that i really like about that is the factory is also able to maximize use of the direct line under the water sea cable to norway so they're using fjord generated hydropower to power the factory that's making the british electric batteries that's one example of our innovation in cornwall we have the cornish lithium investigations going on huge amounts of money being put into that research but just imagine if that comes off as well so we're trying desperately to reduce the number of precious metals required in an electric vehicle and and you and McTurk again on plug life tv definitely worth checking out really demystifies that element of each battery is a terrible planetary disaster because it's still better than refining oil we know this but in the uk what we do well is we see a problem, we find a solution. And that is what my energy's done. That's what British Rail are doing. And I think I'm encouraged by that. In terms of people waiting for cars, again, isn't that okay? I mean, you're getting an amazing piece of equipment that's going to last you a long time. And it's something that is a huge luxury in life to have an individual car that you don't have to share and it's entirely yours. And Tesla have got problems. Of course they have. You've only got to go on Twitter to see how many people are waiting for the Model Y who were told... December, that was January, February, March, and who knows if it even is going to be March. So even the giants fall down. And I just think humans in general have got incredibly impatient and we should really start to value our technology. And, and that means waiting for it like a like a roast dinner. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the only thing that I would say against that is, I mean, at the moment I'm driving an electric vehicle. So if I have to wait another six months for an electric vehicle, so be it. But if somebody's driving an internal combustion engine vehicle and they're having to pile pollutants and particulate matter out the back for an extra six months, eight months or a year or however long it uh, takes for the EV to arrive, that's not good. No, that's true. No, agreed. And I think this is where just on the community level, being able to manage that, the excitement, you know, it's new tech, it's exciting and and. yeah, I think I think that there is a it, there is a danger. There's a danger that that if we don't manage those expectations, and it does get, it goes back to all the great things, training, and and as you say, Sarah, really good customer service, tick tick tick. But I think again, it's back to this issue needs to be really addressed. Um, and and yeah, I I agree. It, yeah managing people's expectations in a perfect world people should appreciate their car but I, I just think quite a few human nature frustration can time sometimes intervenes it was definitely one of the best things about last year um well it's happened a couple of times actually i got rid of my car and i was waiting for my electric car to come and then the same thing happened again i got rid of one electric car and waited for another one and so i had two to three months in between each of those vehicles and i reached out to the community I put messages on Facebook. I sent messages around the school saying, is anybody going anywhere near Bristol? I could really do with the help. I've tried cycling. It's not working for me. It's too far, too dangerous, whatever, because it's actually the best part of 30 miles on very twisty rural roads. I didn't have my electric bike at the time. And people were great. Oh, wow. They were helpful. They were dropping me off. They were taking me to train stations and they didn't care. They liked it. We made some really strong friendships in that process. There's people in the village that I live in that I wouldn't have had any interaction with. And then that need of needing a lift or wanting to buddy up with someone so I didn't have such a long cycle ride was just a gift in itself. And it just reminded me that sometimes we need to just 
slow down a bit. And I, I, I know it's frustrating and it is, you're right, it isn't good that people are continuing to drive their diesel or petrol whilst they wait for their electric. But maybe in my flippant joke around giving a subsidised bus travel wasn't that bad. <laughs> maybe to fill the gap, we do encourage people to think carefully about how else they could be incentivised for their inconvenience if they've had an inconvenience. Or maybe we just be realistic about the fact this is an amazing piece of kit and you, can, you do have to wait six months. But in that time, have you thought about this? And if you did this, this might be the benefit that you experience and that whole rhetoric around we can't just replace every single internal combustion engine with an electric vehicle comes from the fact that public health we're still going to have congested cities and people who aren't moving they're sitting in their beautiful electric vehicle to go and sit in their office and then the same reverse to go home and this is really why active travel gets backed by government because alleviates pressures on the NHS through people that can really enjoying elements of active travel and that's where e-mobility has helped so much electric bikes electric scooters and of course on the transport hierarchy electric vehicles and electric buses as well because you know that even if you get the bus you're still going to walk an extra thousand steps than you would have if you took the car so I really want to see people thinking carefully about this in a holistic way great that you want to go EV as a private car use owner remembering though that we have to prioritize fleets Congratulations to Mighty today, who have smashed their target. They were supposed to have 30% electric vehicles on their fleet by March 2022. That's 2,000 vehicles, and they've done it now. They did it at the end of January. So instead of just going, aren't we great? They've actually upped it. They're sticking with their March 2022, but they're going to do 35% of their fleet by that time. And so the other thing that people forget is when they order their personal vehicle, it's not so much that there's a shortage in the whole world, it's that, that it's being diverted in a good way to essential vehicles, so fleet vehicles. But even then, it's a struggle for people to find the vehicles that they need and want for their fleet. Picking up on something you said a few minutes ago, uh, Sarah, who's on who is it incumbent to educate um, people who are waiting for their electric vehicles that there are alternatives? Who, who has that responsibility to say, have you tried an e-bike? Have you tried car sharing have you tried x y and z is is that a government responsibility is that a local responsibility is that something that people like you and i need to be doing i think we are doing it you know it's, it's i work for an electric vehicle charge point installer we want people to drive electric we want people to use our machines we also want people to know that there are other options available um and one of the reasons i think it's so important to share these messages is because the government can't do everything everyone always says oh the government this and that and the other i think if if private sector were to appreciate that they would create a sticky customer so that means a good thing so for example if i was waiting for my vehicle and somebody said ah really sorry you're gonna still suffer your congestion zone charges in the vehicle you've currently got because we told you three months it's going to be nine but in the next six months We've worked with your local authority who knows the bus company to work out a way that through this app, you can get a free coffee if you utilise the bus. It's just about human behaviour. What do we want? And the government does help. The government is doing a lot. Social media is insanely good at this. Um, And I think the responsibility, there is no incumbent, but I think the people who are getting it in the neck are the ones who took the order off the customer. So it's kind of in a way, in their best interests to not annoy that customer. Um, Because everybody has rights you can pull out of these orders. It obviously costs you a bit of money, but that's not what the dealership wants. That's not what the lease co wants. So working with that customer to work out how you could make this better for them puts the responsibility on them. 
I think it's a shared responsibility, which ultimately is 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 how we're going to tackle the climate crisis. You know, I'm going to look at it from a holistic perspective because I think it's about actually understanding it's a brave new world that we're entering into to be able to meet the net zero targets that we have to. So going back to Sarah's piece about mobility, you know, we have to be really inventive about how we inspire people to mix. You know, we've got so many good uh, micro mobilities. Sarah said, you know, wouldn't it be lovely to be able to link with an e-bike, with your bus, with being able able to have you know a, a, a obviously a, a ticket um, that actually was able to connect all of those things and reward you but then still have an EV but maybe lift share with it I think it's about looking at things in a much more connected way and understanding that if we're going to change those behaviors then we need to support and that support is going to be required um, by looking at things in a brand new way and not being quite so um yeah single focused on any one part of the transport hierarchy as we said it's about that mix isn't it i'm just looking at the moment at um a tweet from a user called e-bike tips and it it's sort of linking together two things we've talked about which is alternate means of travel such as in this case the train and electric bikes and caledonia sleeper network have banned electric bikes on their trains, which is one of those things that doesn't seem to make sense. Apparently, they're scared that the uh, batteries are going to explode and set on fire while people are asleep, but they don't mind laptops and other things that have got batteries on there. It's just e-bikes. But that shows sort of a lack of joined up thinking. You know, if you're trying to promote uh, alternate means of transport that aren't two, three, four ton cars with one person in, and yet you're not allowing an e-bike to go on a train, it's kind of shooting yourself in the foot isn't it yeah i think that's that's a fantastic example gary of uh, where it's gone horribly wrong in my opinion because yeah Mm -hmm. this is not going to help is it really isn't going to help and again that come for me it's about understanding how uh, the research and the insight um and also in that particular case a rigorous risk assessment i would suggest but um yeah i won't go into the too much detail on that one but yeah it hit open-minded perhaps sarah what do you think yeah i didn't know about that that's actually quite vexing yeah. but so when i when you started speaking i thought you were going to say that they didn't want them because they're very heavy and a lot of bikes have to be put in a sort of upright position on trains to make sure that they can get multiple bikes on and in um so i can understand the practicalities there but this is where it's so important you asked me whose responsibility is it to help people access all sorts of mobility and that is where the local authority does come in quite brilliantly because you wouldn't even need to bother taking your electric bike on the train if you knew that you could access one affordably easily quickly through an app at the other end of the train like the Brompton docks at many UK train stations or electric equivalents of that coming forward which is great next bike a fantastic human forest in London are brilliant it's just nice to see people again finding an issue and resolving it with innovation and underpinning all of it is usually some kind of app so it doesn't take long before people can work out better ways of doing things. Yeah, there's a great new initiative, um, which is the Big Issue Bike Scheme that's being uh, come to Bristol, which is very exciting. And again, you know, having that really lovely social cause around it. So the Big Issue have teamed up to be able to have um, uh, electric bikes throughout the city. And uh, so, again, I think this is a great model. It's a great example, isn't it, of, of how we can inspire people to do things slightly differently. Is that a good point to uh, bring your topic to a close or is there anything else you'd like to add? 
Yeah, no, I think we've uh, discussed it fully. So yeah, thank you. Finally, my topic. Now, I often read tweets that go along the line of, I was waiting at a charger today and the car on there was at 98% state of charge and he'd been there for almost 90 minutes and the owner was nowhere to be seen. Or I asked this guy how long he was going to be and he said, well, the car tells me I'll be an hour. And then I checked and he was wanting to charge to 100%. Why? Now, we all know that the last 20% of a charge can take as long as the first 80%. So in theory, users will be better served jumping off a charger at 80%, freeing it up for others, moving on to their next charge stop, where they'll get a quicker charge speed. I even tweeted a few weeks ago that one solution would be for all rapid chargers to stop automatically at 80%, and the owner would then have to physically elect to continue the charge by getting out and restarting it. But there are as many opinions on this as there are people. I've had discussions about solutions for this, about how it's up to the driver of the car, about how other people should know what their charging intention is because they can then make their own decisions, about how it's wrong, for example, for someone to approach you or your charger to check out the charging station, the whole gamut of reactions. So what do we think about this? Should everyone be selfless and move off at 80%? Or is it a case of possession is nine-tenths of the law? I'm on the charger, and if I need 100%, I'll stay to 100%. And then the $64,000 question. Does your approach to this change if the driver is a lone female who would potentially feel threatened with an unknown male circling her car like a shark wanting to find out what her intentions are? (laughs) That last one is tough. But at the same time, maybe we should just say people. People on their own in a car park that isn't feeling very secure or safe. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants the aggression of another driver. And I, I think this awareness thing is really important. And the charge point could do that. It could flash up a message that says, you're on 80%. Are you aware it's going to take you an hour to get to 100%? Because what people don't understand is the charging curve within mm-hmm. their vehicle. So when you have your own electric car, you get to know it. And, uh, it's quite disconcerting when you see those kilowatts drop off and you realise there's not much power coming into the car after 80%. But people can be quite hoardy about it. But I've learned in my number of years of driving electric that you don't assume that they know. Not everybody knows that it's going to take a long time. And also some people don't have access to home charging. So I think it boils down to where that charger is. If you're sitting on a motorway service station with a queue of electric vehicles behind you and you're taking that slot and going above 80%, even though you know there's another one in 14 miles, 21 miles, whatever, I think that is quite irresponsible. It's quite selfish behaviour, especially if there is a queue and you're aware of the queue. However, if you're in like a destination place where perhaps you work and there's a load of rapid charges in the car park, if you're lucky, um, it's likely that you have actually just forgotten the time. But some of the charge point operators are issuing overstay fees. So automatically after X amount of minutes, you get a 10, 20 pound fine added on top of your charging fee. Um, And that can be quite a persuasive way of getting someone to get off. Now, where that falls down, I think it's really unfair when the owner of that vehicle, through the app that they started the charge with, doesn't get a push notification to notify you that that's about to happen. You don't get any warning. It just happens. Your responsibility is reading the tiny, tiny small print on a silly little sticker that you probably didn't even notice on the side of the charger. And that's what I object to. If you've got enough technology within that machine to fine you, you should have enough technology in that machine to send the owner of the vehicle a notification that says, you're due to finish. Please remove your vehicle. You will be subject to a fine. 
Pam? Yeah, I think Sarah's uh, put some really great points there, particularly in terms of that, uh, manage, again, managing expectations, isn't it? The, the tech is there and it's got to work both ways. Um, in terms of that question around do you do, do you wait patiently or do they get uh, thrown off um, simplistically? I, th- I, th- I don't think they can get thrown off. And I think this is exactly right back to Sarah's point. I think it is about the, the fact that we need to make sure the systems are addressing what the challenges, the challenges that are being thrown up. Um, and we know that the systems in terms of the charging systems, you know, they are going to have to factor in the in the variety, um, obviously, of cars that we've got out there. And and until there is a, there's less variety, this is going to be a problem. So, yeah, I think it is about the tech leading here and the uh, the ability to be able to give really good um, communication, perhaps before that penalisation is put in place, as Sarah says, that seems to be a bit counter uh, counterintuitive. Yeah, and, and the user. So I, I wished the other day. I, I, you know, when I don't have access to a home charger, perhaps I'm on the road for the whole week, which isn't actually unusual. I was so desperate for a charge. I was on four percent. It was one degree. The charger showed as available on ZapMap. A diligent EV driver will always check ZapMap to see if the charger is available. And when I got there. Both chargers were only kicking out 22 kilowatt, not the advertised 50. Both were in use, one by a very important fleet vehicle. So it was a van, branded van. And the driver had no intention of moving off, even though they were ticking away at sort of 83%, 84%. And I explained that I was desperate. And the response was, well, essentially, I need it more than you. And because he, he was working that day, as was I. But it just quickly became obvious to me, despite the fact there was also uh, ePerjo, there was my eNero, there was uh, an iPace and another iPace in the same company, all of us waiting for this charger. That person felt entitled because they were driving a van and it's the only charger around there for 29 miles. And I just thought there's no point arguing with this person. It, it's just he's, this person has got it in their head that they're not going to move. And that's it and all about it. And so luckily, the person in front of the queue for me let me have the other socket and I got to sort of 15% and limped off to try and find another one because I wasn't going to be going anywhere with 9%. How cool would it be if your car flashed lights on the sort of inside the car on the dashboard that, that shows when you approach the charger, you're red, like you're desperate. Yeah. Whereas, <laughs> I'm so desperate. Whereas um, somebody with a, you know, 64 kilowatt hour battery who's still got 100 miles left in the tank at 50% of the battery, but kind of wants to top up because then they don't have to stop on the way home beyond that point they're on a kind of amber or green colour, so they can see straight away that they're going to be pushing their social luck if they think they can uh, take the charger before you. I love that idea, Sarah, because, yeah, the amount of times that you think you, you go to charge it, as you said, topping up, and it might be that you want to go and have a coffee and you've got to make a business call. But actually, in terms of need, there's no, we've got no gauge, have we, at all, around uh, people around us. So, yeah, I love that idea. It would, it would really, really help. And I suppose that's the other thing I wanted to say in response to your theme, is that people are using the chargers almost in the wrong way. You've got the sort of top up and go charges like motorway networks or places. Then you've got the destination ones. So you're going to be there at least an hour. They're often still a rapid, but you need an hour and a half or something. That's fine too. And then you've got your sort of slower seven or 22 kilowatt charges, which 
you really need to stay there. My vehicle needs to be there for sort of seven to eight hours to get a full charge, like a home charger. Um, so they, they're best placed places where you're going to be there, like overnight or working all day. And so quite often in our line of work, we get people approaching us thinking they want a rapid charger because that's the best of the best, surely. But actually it isn't. You're better off splitting the power available on site amongst multiple sockets so that multiple people can benefit, particularly if you're a business park or a shopping centre where people dwell for a long time. But I always advise making sure that there are sort of distributed rapid charges around the area as well. So if you ever get stuck or really, really stuck or a member of staff has had a nightmare and it didn't charge up all day in that eight hours for whatever reason, they know, or you as an employer, know that there's a rapid charger somewhere nearby. I think that's what's so great about this acquisition is because we're great at fleet, great at home. We help people do destination charging. But now with the power of Mer, we're going to be doing this public realm as well, which is super exciting. And I like the idea that through the apps and the APIs, you can layer your app so you can see what charges are available and you can find your way to them if you're not from the area. Because that happens to me all the time. I don't know where these charges are and you get there and it's a dark car park and you've got no idea which corner of the car park is even in the other day i found myself driving a little bit too fast because i spotted another electric car and i thought are they going to get to the charger before me i've really pushed my luck here as it is and uh, i felt really bad when they didn't even try <laughs> we've all done that we've all done you that have to, sometimes <laughs> did did you just manage to get a subtle little um advertisement advertisement in there for your own company in the middle of that Mama, uh, well that yeah we just yesterday yeah. was the acquisition so it's it's a kind of a giddy smile that i can't get off my face because it's just mega it's just everything we've been working towards to kind of galvanize the interest in electric vehicles and now actually go over to them means it's all well and good if you've got the vehicle but if you've got nowhere to charge it what's the point we, we're kind of circling around the elephant in the room with this one, which is this whole problem goes away if we have enough chargers. Now, you you look at the, I hate to bring, I hate to use the T word twice in one uh, podcast, but you look at Tesla and they don't have this problem because they do two things that other chargers, charging networks don't do. A, if they're busy, they will cut the charge off at 80%. That's in the software. And B, they put 8, 10, 12 14, 24 charges in so that even if they're all busy, the maximum you're usually waiting there is like four or five minutes. And it's the fact that the other charge point operators that we have in the UK, particularly, they do, there are very, very few occasions where that happens. I mean, you go to grid serving rugby, you go to the electric highway in um, the electric forecourt in Braintree, maybe the Instavolt. Uh, eight unit up at Banbury. That's about the sort of the extent of it. As I say, if you put enough infrastructure in, in a given place, this whole issue of how long are you going to be there? Are you going past 80%? It disappears. Yeah, the right charger in the right place. That's kind of the thing. Goes back to investment from my perspective, doesn't it? If we look at the models, we know that that um, actually there's a lot of work that's going along, uh, going along in particular in law firms looking well collectively, but looking at, about uh, charging infrastructure from a debt funding model. You know, because actually, if you can release the funding to put the infrastructure in, knowing that the return is is going to take a little bit longer, um, but there is a need now that obviously we know is going to scale rapidly. I think that and and, and being able to go back to Sarah point if we look at the different types of charging base destination route charging how we then get that mix right um on on a a regional city uk basis that that that's to me is the critical piece because we 
the, the scaling of charging is, is imperative. Um, and I think it's about understanding what's going to drive that uh, and make sure that we can address, you know, that we know local councils in particular um, are looking very much at the models around um, different types of, you know, lamppost on street, of course, but they, again, all take time. Um, and then Sarah and I both say yeah, there's some great solutions out there, not least um, sharing charges and community charging, um, knowing that lots of people in the country uh, have their own charges, obviously, on their drives and that they can be shared. So, yeah, going back to that point about sharing um, at destination charging, if there was more opportunity to be able to charge at base, work and also home for, for obviously for more people, then I think that will start to alleviate some of the things that we're seeing um, on those destination charging points. Anything else on this? Not from me. Wonderful. It's time for our cool things. Sarah, do you have a cool thing to share with us? I shared mine the whole way through. I just think it's so important to hit the message home around underpinning everything we're doing with electric vehicle charging and making sure that renewable energy is what's powering it. I think that's the message we need to get out there. Avoiding the word education because people do already feel educated. They're not saying things because they feel silly, but raising awareness around multifaceted issues and making sure that there's somebody out there. And it's, it's kind of us. We're trying to do it now on these podcasts trying to help people to see the different sides of the argument and making informed decisions rather than one source of information around renewable energy. Pam, what's your cool thing? Mine's completely, uh, uh, yeah, so it's cool. So it's my cool thing is fusion solar systems. So the reason that um, I've identified this is, you know, we know installation of PV installation, going back to the energy conversation, um, is, is clearly on the rise, huge acceleration. Um, there's a really great piece of tech that's been developed by um, Huawei and FutureLek in an exclusive um, deal where they provide a fusion solar system which uses intelligent technology and ultimately that optimizes the use of the sun's energy. So if you imagine you've got, you know, six, eight, 12, whatever it is, panels on your roof and the sun, as it moves across the sky at different points of the day, it's not, some of those panels aren't being used or optimized in the best way. So actually this piece of tech um, enables that optimization to happen so that the rest of the panels can accommodate, um, which, yeah, I just think starts to, to show how exciting the tech is in terms of harnessing that sun and being able to use it the most efficient way. They've also got Got, which we know on a more serious note use solar power um, so it's PV installation comes with risks and one of those of course is around uh, fire risks and they've also patented um, an arc fault circuit interrupter and that actually recognizes faults and within half a second it actually alerts any homeowners or indeed obviously from a business perspective managers instantly um, and I think it's a cool piece of tech because it's a massive step forward uh, in terms of risk management and also optimization. Excellent, excellent. Michael cool thing relates to self-driving cars. We've heard that uh, Tesla's looking to create full self-driving software and install it on their various models, and testing's underway on that. And I mean, there's a whole discussion about whether testing something like that on public roads with general members of the public is something we should be condoning or not, but that's a discussion for a different time. But while Tesla's been getting all the headlines, a company called Cruise is already running full self-driving vehicles for ride-hailing ride services 
in San Francisco. The ride-hailing service runs genuine driverless cars based on Chevy Volts. They don't even have a safety driver behind the wheel. There are caveats, though. The vehicles only operate during the day. They only operate on certain areas and streets within specific neighbourhoods. And for various legal reasons, they can't charge anybody, charge as in ask them for money, for the rides yet. Uh, one of the reasons they've able to, they're able to progress a little bit quicker than Tesla seem to be doing is that they've opted to use LiDAR rather than cameras. Elon Musk seems to have said, I'm not using uh, LiDAR on my vehicles. So that I believe that's slowing him down because they put LiDAR onto these Chevy Bolts. They've been able to um, bypass some of the issues that the Tesla full self-driving uh, has encountered. Would you get into a car that didn't have a driver? Not sure I would, but it seems to work well for, uh, for Cruise. So there we go. Links to all the cool things will be in the show notes. Many thanks to my uh, two guests today. This has been a very interesting discussion. It's been nice to see uh, different points of view um, on these topics. Check out the links in the show notes for social media connections and websites for uh, Pam and Sarah. Uh, between you and me, I can see at least one and maybe both of them coming back as guests in their own episodes next season. But you know, we'll just we'll sweep that under the carpet until I've managed to have uh, individual discussions with them. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, ladies. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you yeah, so thank you. The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZapMap. ZapMap is the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK. Use it to search for available chargers, plan electric journeys, pay for charging on participating networks and share updates with other EV drivers. ZapMap is free to download and use with subscription plans for enhanced features such as using ZapMap in car, on CarPlay or Android Auto. And that's the show for today and for season six of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to all 20 episodes. We'll be taking a few weeks off now as we prepare for season seven. At the moment, I already have thoughts and ideas for at least a dozen new episodes for that season. However, a few of them do depend on whether I can entice guests onto the show. So if anyone has a direct link to Quentin Wilson and can put me in touch with him, please let me know at evmusings at gmail.com. If you want to contact me, that's the email to use, and I'm also on Twitter at MusingsEV. If you want to support the podcast and the newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? Well, if you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings, that's ko-fi.com slash evmusings, and you can do just that. You can also pay with that fantastic Apple Pay too. If you want a quick reference ebook to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called So You've Gone Electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. At the moment, it's free on Kindle Unlimited, or if you're in the Kindle Lending Library. Please check it out. Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingZV with the words Knights of the Roundtable, hashtag if you know you know. Nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. You know he's always been a fan of soccer. He played in Saturday leagues, he's coached at the local school, really loves the game. I told him he probably needs to try something like Football Manager on the Xbox. 
He wasn't convinced. Don't say that, I'm trying to make a career out of this. Many thanks for listening. Bye-bye.